Well, good morning. It is uh, a joy and a privilege to be with you once again. My family and I had such a wonderful time here last November, um, and we're reminded of it this morning as we've worshipped together. And, and sometimes when we worship like we have, and we've sung the songs that we have with the, the beauty of the Lord, high and lifted up, and beholding our God, and we, we think of one of those things that sometimes can feel like when we come to this time that we digress. Uh, and you know what I mean. We kind of reach back into some of the maybe more mundane things it might feel like. Because sometimes we tend to, to focus on the gospel as we sing. I love that chorus they've sung, the gospel song is the name of it. And, and just to focus in on the gospel. And then when we come to the word, there's portions of the word that, that, that seem to deal with maybe zero in on certain things. And sometimes we do that apart from the gospel. And we forget that the gospel is not just for those who are out, outside the walls lost and dying, but that the gospel is for, for us. We stand desperately in need of the gospel. And so as we come to the word this morning, and, and we're going to be focusing this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you want to turn there, uh, we're going to be focusing a little bit more on, on God's people, on the church. But nonetheless, we must do so through the lens of that very same gospel, the gospel that, that brought us here, the gospel that saved us from our sin. And so as we work through this text this morning, I pray that you will do so uh, having in view the very fundamental realities of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ because it stands at the center of everything the Word teaches us. And, and as uh, we just heard sung, the living Word, this is our opportunity to partake in the living Word. This is not mere words on a page uh, written thousands of years ago. This is God's living Word for us today. And so it is our prayer as we work through this, in spite of me, that, that God's Spirit will bring alive His Word in you, that He will do His work in your heart this morning, uh, whatever that work, that need is, whether that need is to come to faith in Christ for the very first time, seeing your need for the gospel and repenting, or whether that's to be uh, revived in your, your life as you maybe have been walking the path of, of Christianity in a very mundane, lethargic, complacent way, or maybe as you are a believer here this morning, excited that you're here with the corporate body to celebrate and worship that which we live for and we hopefully would die for, that that you would just be excited by the word this morning as we share together in this living word. Before we read the text, I just wanted to kind of give you some explanation why this text, First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 24. You know, it's one of those difficult matters to, to decide when you go and preach somewhere, well, what am I going to preach on? You know, I, I don't know what the needs are. I don't know what's pressing. Uh, I know the gospel is the need. Uh, always, but how do you choose a particular text? Well, I'll tell you the, the spirit-filled way in which I chose this text. I just finished conducting a Bible study. Um, I have a Bible study with eight men on Friday mornings, and we just worked our way through the book of First Thessalonians. And as we came to the end of it, it was just uh, very, um, uh, I don't know, educational, that's not the right word, just very encouraging to me as a we walk through this last portion of the text. I've, I've preached on this before. Matter of fact, I preached this text at TJ's ordination service. And, um, and, and so as I worked, th worked through that in this Bible study, I saw many of the things that just excited me and encouraged me. And, and so for that reason, I wanted to, 
to have an opportunity to have an outlet this morning and share that as I pray that God will use it in hearts here today in the same way that he used it in my heart. Because, you see, as Paul writes this letter to a church, a local community of believers, he does so with great purpose, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And and think about this. Around the world, we hear these stories all the time right now, and unfortunately about people in foreign lands who are even today losing their very heads for the sake of the gospel. Uh, this, This happens all the time. It has been happening ever since Christianity came to be, since Christ died on the cross and he had told his disciples, this is the kind of experience we should expect. But now, that's not exactly our experience, is it? In our nation, uh, while we recognize there's some difficulties going on, some things that might in the future press in upon the church in a very real way, right now, uh, we, we have an opportunity, we have great freedom to, to preach the gospel, to, to love our Savior. But nevertheless, we still find that the greatest threat in our nation for the gospel's sake doesn't really happen from the outside with those who are threatening us. But we tend to see it happen more within the church itself. And that's a very sad thing, but it's a reality. And it's a reality probably in every single church. But in some churches, what we find is that they've just become lethargic and complacent. They've lost their luster for the gospel. And and as a result, they've begun to decline. Difficulties arise from that, and they just see decline happening. Some churches uh, find themselves figuratively losing their heads over insignificant and mundane matters within the church. You know, there's things like issues concerning buildings, issues concerning styles of music, issues concerning what curriculum we're going to use or, or how we should shape or organize all our particular ministries. None of those things are bad things, but it seems like within the church, those are the very things that we suffer from, that the gospel testimony is threatened by. And some churches who go through these things, they, they find or they suffer great loss and difficulty because sometimes they split over these things. Sometimes they lose a great deal of their membership as a result. These are the threats that we find in our context to the gospel. It's within more than it is without. And so as Paul addresses this, this local assembly in Thessalonica, he, he addresses several concerns and, and, and he concludes with a very pointed series of exhortations for the local body. To get us there just quickly, we we recognize as he writes this letter in chapter 1, he begins to to express his joy over the confidence of the believers. And he says, I know that you belong to God. And and then he goes on in chapter 2 to explain why he has that confidence. Because the testimony of these believers was being magnified and broadcast in both word and deed throughout the entire region of Macedonia and Achaia. Then in chapter 3... Paul shares his heart and his concern for this little church. He was concerned about the difficulties that they were suffering. So much so that he feared that these tribulations and these trials would cause them to possibly abandon the faith and what the the work that he had done there would be, in fact, in vain. And so he sends Timothy to to bring back a report because he was unable to go. And in chapter 3, Paul reveals that Timothy had brought that report back and it encourages him because he finds that these believers were standing firm underneath all the pressures that they were experiencing. They were standing firm in the faith. But Paul also says in chapter 3 that there was something 
that was yet lacking in their faith. That he desired to visit them in order to fill up or to to strengthen up that which he saw was lacking. And then chapters 4 and 5, he turns his attention to several particular details. Issues that were possibly going on in the church or maybe there were some general issues. But he addresses them specifically. Things like purity. Things like uh, a personal vengeance. Things like love for one another within the body and beyond. And then in chapter 4, probably one of the most familiar passages uh, to most of us from this book is Paul's address of the concern for the hope of the believers. This is really where he's driving to in this book. And that was that there were some in Thessalonica who were, who were struggling with this issue of hope. Because they had loved ones who had died. Maybe some just naturally, some from the persecution that was going on. And they didn't know what was going to happen to those who had died prior to the Lord's return. And so Paul begins to inform them, to encourage them concerning the great hope of the believer. He carries that over into chapter 5 with issues concerning the return of Christ. And then as he concludes this book in chapter 5, verse 12 to the end, he, he zeroes in on some very particulars concerning the body of Christ that I have to assume are very significant. I don't think Paul was just trying to fill up a a, a word quota in his book, but rather he was trying to convey what God, through his inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was was purposing for him to write to these believers that was needful for them, and as such is needful for you and I this very day. So let's read together. Chapter 5, verses 12 through 24, and then we'll ask the Lord to, to help us as we work through this. Paul writes, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come and gather as a, as a corporate body of believers wanting to share together in the glory of the gospel. As we have sung praises to you as you've been, uh, you have told us that we should and we rejoice in that. And then as we partake of the word, uh, desiring that the word would press in upon our hearts and, and Lord, that it would change us, radically change us, that it would excite us, that it would convict us and compel us to live our lives for the gospel, for the glory of God. And Father, we admit our sinfulness and our struggle even in this as believers. That, Lord, we, we brush up against the word in a rough way. It doesn't, we don't always receive it gladly. And, and I pray this morning, Lord, that you would help us to do that very thing. We, we don't want to allow our opinions and our ideas and our experiences to shape the word. We want the word, Lord, to shape us. To conform us to the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
So God, we, we beg of you, even in these moments, that your spirit would have full sway at our hearts. And Lord, that as we will talk about in a few moments, that we would not quench the spirit in these moments, but that the spirit would, would convict us, convince us, encourage us, challenge us, and compel us, Lord, to live differently. We pray, Lord, that when we walk out of here, we would not walk out the same way in which we walked in, but Lord, that we would indeed be changed because of your word. So it's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Let me kind of give you kind of the, the framework we're going to walk through through in this passage, just so you can kind of know where we're going. Uh, as we work through these verses, these, these are the, the pegs on which we're going to hang our thoughts. First of all, we're, we want to see that Paul addresses peace in regards to leadership. Then we're going to see that Paul addresses patience in regard to ministry. And then Paul's going to uh, speak to or write concerning proper perspective in our circumstances. And then persistence in the word. And finally, he's going to offer us a promise in regard to the ultimate outcome. These are the five things we're going to walk through. And so I pray that God will enlighten, illuminate our hearts as we do so. And then uh, pray that our hearts and lives will be changed as a result. So let's dive in first of all with verses 12 and 13 as paul now turns his attention after all that he has spoken to these believers he turns his attention to the issue of peace in the midst or in regard to leadership you see we have to begin here by being very careful and and i'm going to mention this several times through this passage because i want to I want to help our paradigm as we read these words. There's a couple phrases in this passage that are very familiar to many of you. And so I want us to be able to look at them from God's perspective through the lens of the gospel and not merely uh, based on our opinions or our experiences. And so when we first address this, when, when Paul says, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, the first thing that happens is we immediately assume a position as opposed to a practice. Now, follow with me. Because just as I myself have been guilty of. I, I said I shared this, this passage in regards to TJ's uh, ordination. Because we think of these words as it pertains to pastors or elders. Or those kinds of leadership people. And, and by all means I think that is in view. But I think that's too narrow of a view. Because Paul nowhere mentions those positions. What Paul mentions is a practice, uh, uh, the way in which people live or function, as he says that we, we need to respect those who labor among you and are over you and admonish you. Now, the reason I say that has a little bit to do with uh, a particular way a word is translated. And I, I just want to share that with you uh, to help you see that. Maybe you have different translations here. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and I hope you have different translations to help us see this. But that word respect, when Paul says we ask you, brothers, that to respect those who are laboring among you. Uh, here's some of the different translations of that word. The, the Holman Christian Bible says uh, to give recognition to those who labor among you. The New American Standard says to appreciate those. The King James Version says to know those. And then the NIV as well uses the same translation as the one we're using this morning. I bring that to your attention because the term that's translated there it literally means to know. Now, 
we often try to fit that into the scope of things. And, and I actually think the King James Version has it best here. I think it's right for us to read it. We ask your brothers to know those who are labor among you. Because what it really means, it can mean the concept of, of giving respect. But what it ba- really means is to be aware of or to take notice of. So I think Paul's admonition is here to the body of believers, brothers and sisters, that you should take notice of those who are laboring among you. And then the following two phrases, I think, tell us in what way these people labor among you. They are, they are support for that, that broader scope of those who are laboring among you. So he says, how are they laboring among you? They are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Or literally, they are leading you in the Lord and admonishing you. So what Paul is drawing our attention to as, as the body of Christ is that we are to look around us in the midst of the body as we relate to one another. We are to take notice of people who are functioning in a certain way, who are leading, that's probably the better translation, leading you specifically in the Lord. We can lead in all kinds of ways, in good ways, but when it comes to the body of believers, what becomes important is not that somebody has business savvy or, or, or those kinds of things, but that they have the passion and an ability to lead you in the Lord. And then they also are functioning in a way that admonish the body. And, and that carries with it the ideals of encouragement, correction, and instruction. All those things are the, help define that concept of admonishing. So now read that to, again. We ask you, brothers, to take notice of or be aware of those among you who are laboring they are the ones who are leading you and who are admonishing you and then when you take notice of those people what do you do you esteem them highly now we begin to see the concept of position come into play when we begin to see people who are functioning in ministry in a particular way, it is because of that that we, that we try to place them in a role where they can do the body the most good, where they can not only help me as an individual, but they can help the body of Christ. So we begin to esteem them into a particular role or position. Now, I think this is very significant in the life of the church even today because I know in my experience, not that that is king, but uh, that's what I can speak from, a lot of churches even that I've served in we kind of approach it from a, a, a reverse role. We kind of go, well, we have to have these positions. So let's find the people to fill them, right? I mean, that makes sense. But what happens is we begin to, to just get warm bodies into places. Sometimes we're very fortunate. And we have the people within the church to do that. We, we have uh, uh, people who, to fill certain teaching positions. We have people to, to serve in sp- certain ministry areas. But sometimes that's not the case. But we feel like we have to just go, okay, well, we got this position. We have to put a body in it. And that typically eventually leads to some great difficulties within the church. See, I remember a time in one of the churches uh, that I served in. We had our constitution and bylaws required that we carry seven deacons. And I think they come to that number because of Acts chapter 6 where it said call you out among seven men. Uh, nothing wrong with that. But the problem was we came to some, some difficult issues where the, we just didn't have the people to feel that. And so we come to a crossroads and, and what the tradition had been, well, we just have to get somebody to feel the role. Fortunately, in that particular case, they decided that it was more important that we have people who are 
qualified who are already functioning in that way and we place them in that even if it doesn't meet our quota because that would be better ultimately. But too often we end up with people teaching that really aren't gifted to teach. They're, they're very willing to serve, don't get me wrong, but they, they don't have the gift of teaching and they end up teaching wrong things without meaning to or they end up just turning people off because that's just not their gift. And so I think Paul recognizes that this issue of putting people in roles in the church can lead to a great deal of difficulty. Why do I say that? Well, look at his concluding comment there. Be at peace among yourselves. I mean, why would he have to add that? I mean, I don't think it was just kind of a general cliche. I think Paul really meant that, you know, this is going to be an area of tension. This is going to be an area of struggle. And so... You need to be at peace with one another. That offers us the understanding that there's a negative sense here that as we approach leadership in the church, whatever that might look like in our individual churches, that there is the potential for great difficulty that could hinder the magnifying of the gospel from that body. And that, for us, is king. That's what matters most. It is the testimony of the gospel that's going forth. And, and so I think Paul makes that statement, be at peace among yourselves in, in two ways. Number one, it's a command because we as the body of Christ among all people should exemplify what peace looks like. As we broadcast ourselves as the body of Christ to the community and world around us, they should be able to look at us and see peace. And you and I both know that is not always the role of the church, is it? It's not a default position. It doesn't come naturally. In fact, it comes very supernaturally. We tend to, to default to the negative side, looking for all the problems and all the wrongs, right? That's, that's human sinful nature. So Paul says you need to be at peace among yourselves. But I also think that it's an encouragement when he says that, that if we will trust God's way of doing certain things, that we will experience this reality of peace. You know, we design things and we're supposed to. We're supposed to be thinkers and, and organizers and all those things, but we have to submit our ideas and our ways of doing things to the Lord's way. And I think God tells us on more than one occasion, here is one of them, how we should go about viewing this reality of leadership in the church. And he desires that we experience peace and that that be the reality of the body. But not only that, he goes on from there. He, he, he focuses on this view of leadership, which we tend to think of, of, of it looking upward. And then he kind of focuses on the looking around. And he, he exhorts them to be patient in ministry in verses 14 and 15. He writes, and I urge you, now this is a little bit stronger of a statement. And I urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Now, when we read that, uh, we, we recognize that there are three particular categories or groups of people, right? There are the idle, depending again on your translation, some of it will be translated as unruly. We have the, the faint-hearted or the discouraged, and then we have the weak. And so we, we want to say, well, who exactly are those people? Because, you know, or either we kind of go, I know who those people are in my church, it's very difficult for us to identify with certainty 
who these groups are that Paul is referring to. Different people have different ideas. I have my ideas. I, I'll tell you what they are. I, I kind of think that his focus on the idol probably has something to do with those people who had just for some reason ceased working uh, in the expectation that Christ was going to return right then. And so they just quit. Just waiting. You know, in our today's world, we kind of have the ideas, well, let's just run the credit cards up. Jesus is coming tomorrow, so we ain't got to worry about paying the bills, right? Not really. That's, that's possibly the idol, and I say that because in Second Thessalonians, he addresses that particular issue. And then when we talk about the discouraged, I think it very possibly may be those who were lacking the hope, concerned about their brother or their sister who had already died, and, and Christ hadn't returned, what was going to happen to them? And then, of course, the weak... It's very possible because of the way Paul uses the weak throughout many of his epistles. Those were those people, very possibly, who they, they felt like they needed to form these very strict rules around themselves because of their culture. They'd come out of Jude, uh, Judaism, and they felt like they, they couldn't do certain things. And, and, and Paul calls them the weak, not because they're unbelievers or because they're lesser people, but merely because they hadn't experienced the, or felt the, 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 the ability to, to experience the freedoms that they now had in Christ. So he calls them weak. Now, is that exactly who they are? I don't know. And I don't think anybody can say with certainty. And so I point that out to you for this reason. We have to be careful about trying to press the scripture beyond what we can know for sure. Because if we do that and then we determine what this text means based on something we're uncertain about, I think we're very likely to miss the point. So we have to look for in the text what exactly we can assume. We can look and see what he says about those groups, whoever the idle are, whoever the faint-hearted or discouraged are, whoever the weak are, we know that we're going to see in a moment those aren't the people you kind of uh, flock to necessarily uh, in the crowd. But he says to them, you need to, he gives the admonitions or the ex- exhortations, you need to admonish, that is to correct, to encourage, to instruct the idle or unruly. You need to encourage the faint-hearted and you need to help, or literally that means to cling to or to be devoted to the weak. And here's what we can understand from that passage is that within the church there are a variety of needs in ministry there are all kinds of things that are happen we can try to identify or tag them by these groups but we could probably add 15 or 16 more but nevertheless there's opportunities and needs within the body and what paul does here is he addresses the body you as believers in the community of faith to be the ones who are ministering to these kinds of people why Because of the variety of needs for ministry, there is no one person who can do that all and do it well. There is no pastor. I assure you, this is one who fits the bill that cannot address or minister effectively in every situation that arises in a church. I'm not always the best person. And and not even a group of, 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 of pastors together. We have three here, Pastor Billy, Pastor Tim, and Pastor TJ. They don't possess all the abilities to effectively minister to every situation that arises. I know they would love to, and they want to try, but they need help. I, I could take even your deacon board and say probably together, you probably don't all possess all the abilities and gifts. But the body of believers does, and I believe that because God tells us that he has given to the body a variety of giftedness. Why? Because of the needs that would arise, it's not just one person or two or three, it's the entire body ministering to one another. So Paul says to them, I, I urge you, I strongly urge you, brothers, that you need to minister to these needs. And then he adds that caveat at the end, just like he did in the first section. Be patient 
with them all. Why would he say that? Well, I think we understand this one, don't we? Because whoever these groups of people are, and, and we probably all fit into one of these possible groups at some time or another, ministry in these situations tends to be frustrating. I mean, we, we do something. We pour our hearts into somebody, and we won't change. We want to see results. We want to see them going, thank you. But more often than not, that's not what happens. Sometimes we pour our lives into a person or a group of people and what we get back is slammed. And we get cut down. And it's very difficult to stand up underneath that. And so Paul says, be patient. It's going to take time. You, you need to endure, be long-suffering with these people. And then he adds on to that, that we're not to repay evil with evil. Why would he say that? Well, if you've ever tried to minister to people especially those that are the down and out and struggling, and they push back against you, man, you just want to like nail them. You want to get them back, right? You ever felt that way or am I alone in this? So Paul says, don't return evil for evil because that's your sinful nature. You're going to want to feel that way. You're going to feel that way and you're going to want to do it, but don't do that. Be patient. Don't return evil for evil, but pursue the good. Pursue the good. You see, we need to understand that church... The body of Christ is not about individualism. It is about individuals, but not about individualism. This church doesn't exist for Pastor Billy, or Pastor TJ, or Pastor Tim. It doesn't exist for you. It exists for the corporate body of believers together, bringing glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to remind ourselves. I have to remind myself of that. Because I try to put myself in the center of these kinds of things. It's all about me. What about me? And so we retaliate, we, we, we react rather than stepping back and seeking God in the process. Now, when we talk about peace and we talk about patience, I began by saying we need to look at this through the view of the gospel because these are fundamental issues of the gospel itself. We're reminded in Colossians chapter 1, just to give you an example, uh, where Paul begins to write about who Christ is. In verse 19, he says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So when we pursue peace and we desire peace, that stands at the very heart of the gospel. It is the very thing, characteristic of God that enabled us to come to faith in Christ. Because God desired peace for his people. But then if you look in Romans 2, and there are other examples, but Romans 2, um, just to kind of set that up, Paul is addressing in chapter 1, you know, those people who are, were turning away from what God had revealed to them. And then he, in chapter 2, he addresses the religious folks. And he says, oh, but you, you know, you say, yes, amen, but... You who say to do the right things, you're not doing them yourselves. And then what he says, he says, in verse 4, he goes on and says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So what Paul's saying there, and, and I'll show you how this fits. What Paul is saying is that, that there are people, like you and me, but the people he was addressing in, in in the book of Romans that were saying, you know, amen to all the right things, but they were doing certain things. And when they did those things, God's wrath didn't fall on them. So they just assumed, hey, it must be okay. So we could just keep doing it. God didn't judge me. Not right then. 
So what Paul was saying to them, that do you not realize that the reason God didn't judge you is because he's being patient, long-suffering with you? And the reason he's doing that is not for you to walk away going, oh, it must be okay, I can get away with it. It'll be all right. But for you to understand that that patience of God is the very thing that God is granting to you to lead you to repentance. So peace, patience, fundamental realities of the very gospel that we so love. In light of the gospel, we are to seek the good of one another in the body. We must endure bad, whether that bad is intentionally thrown at us or unintentionally thrown at us. We are to respond or answer with the gospel, not with our sinful flesh, as we so often want to do. We are to pursue the good toward one another within the community of faith, that is the church, the local church. But Paul goes on further than that and says, but also toward all. So it doesn't stop at the walls or the doors of the church, but even to the world who cares nothing about our Christ and they don't care about treating us badly. It says you're even to be peaceful and patient toward them because these are the very things that will magnify the gospel to a lost and dying world as well. Folks, within the church, these things are so important because without them, without them, we threaten the very gospel. It is the church, T.J., mentioned this earlier it is the church that god has placed here as the arm of reaching people for the kingdom that is his purpose for his bride and if we can't pursue peace and we can't pursue patience then it seems like the world will die without christ now there's more to the story than just that but we must view it that way because this is god's purpose for his radiant bride Moving on in verse 16 through 18, not only do we see the issues of peace and patience, but now Paul turns his attention to to perspective in our circumstances. Now, here's where context becomes important. Because what follows here is stated in light of what Paul has just said about peace and leadership and patience in ministry. So when we read this, this barrage of commands that comes up, we need to read them understanding what Paul is talking about. You see, first of all, you're very familiar with this one. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Now, we often treat those as, as just proverbs that we can just kind of lob at people, right? You see somebody kind of going, oh, woe is me. And you kind of go, hey, man, you're supposed to rejoice always. Well, oh, I don't feel like it. Well, you should be praying without ceasing, Right? We just kind of lob these things out there without any boundaries or context because here's where that becomes important because the concept of rejoicing always, if we just make it broad without any boundaries, then it's inconsistent with all of Scripture because Scripture tells us that there's a time to rejoice and a time to mourn. There's a time to laugh and there's a time to... So how can Paul then say, well, rejoice always? Well, I think his focus is in light of what we're talking about. Pursuing peace and leadership, pursuing patience in ministry. How are we going to do that? Well, this first three exhortations he provides, rejoice always, which I think is supported by the next two. That is, pray unceasingly and give thanks in all things are part of the how. But without these, we're not going to see peace in leadership. We're not going to see patience in ministry. So we need to pursue a certain perspective in light of these things. So how are we going to rejoice always? Well, 
when it comes to the body of believers, and as we're dealing with one another relating, the Bible tells us that we need to pray without ceasing. What does that mean? That the moment my feet hit the floor, my eyes open in the morning, I better start praying and not stop until I go to bed at night. I don't think so. That'd be a good thing, but I think what Paul is exhorting us to do is in every situation in the church, we must always approach it through the avenue of prayer. We need to unceasingly ask for God's help when we're dealing with these issues of leadership and the struggles that come with that. When we're dealing with ministering to one another, we better be doing it through the avenue of prayer, asking God for his help. Why? Because it doesn't come naturally. It's not going to happen without God. And if it does happen without God, then it's merely for yourself and you're being selfish. You're looking for some glory. So we better be praying. And as we pray, that's going to affect our attitude as we deal with those tough people to deal with. The people we don't want to minister to, but we're supposed to. God's going to change our attitude. And he says, give thanks in all things. Well, I'm probably alone in this one, but I tend to find myself falling towards the looking for all the negative. Right? I can pick out what's wrong in every situation. Again, I credit that to my sinful sinfulness as a human being. And it, rec- it caused me to recognize my absolute need for Christ in every situation that I better be on my knees begging and praying, God, help me see these things. And, and as I say these things even to you, I recognize how many times I have failed. And that just compelled me even that much more to, to beg for God's help because I can't do it. But if we begin to look for the things to give thanks about, even in the negative situation, the tough situation, that that along with praying is going to affect our perspective of the circumstances within the church. It's going to cause us to have an attitude of rejoicing where we can come together like this and sing the songs we have sung and not just be putting on a face, but literally celebrating together and enjoying that celebration with the body, not coming to the same room so we can be alone, but doing it corporately. I think this affects the issues within the church in such a way that it enables us to magnify the gospel within these walls and beyond these walls. So rejoice always when you're dealing, and you're dealing with it today. When you're dealing with leadership, then rejoice in the midst of that. Don't look at there and go, oh, I can't believe this person's on the list. Look for the ones that should be on there and, and rejoice. Look for the ones who are functioning that way already and place them in in that role, esteem them highly. Pray, and, and even Pastor Billy has already talked about that, and it was, I think, written on the, the that thing. I don't know whether it was you that said it or I read it, but we have to pray about those things. Oh, yeah, it was on there. Don't vote for somebody just to vote, but rather do it through prayer. Ask for God's help, because God speaks to his people. I believe that. As, inf- as, as infallible, as fallible as we are, God still speaks to his people corporately. There's no one of us that have the inroad to, to God. We need each other. And that's why we do things congregationally the way we do. But we need to pursue that rejoicing through an attitude of prayer and through giving thanks for all things. And then the next thing is probably, I would say, is the most fundamental and important of all, persistence in the word. Paul then goes on to give three more machine gun exhortations. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecy, but test everything. We'll stop there for the moment. Once again, I believe that in this context, these three fit perfectly together. 
And, and that, that phrase, do not quench the Spirit, it's another one of those kind of verse-lobbing things. We've all heard that one probably. Don't quench the Spirit. What does that mean? I mean, I actually asked some people over the last couple of weeks what they thought that meant. And I got different answers. Because when you just throw that verse out there, don't quench the Spirit. It's really left up to us to figure out what it means. And if it's left up to us, then we're probably going to be in trouble. We might get lucky, but more often than not, we're going to find ourselves in trouble. Our pursuit, even if we think we know what it means, is to understand what God intended by that phrase. Don't quench the Spirit. And I think the next two tell us exactly what that means. Do not despise prophecy. Now we have to talk about what that actually means, right? Uh, you understand that the concept of prophecy, where we, I know we think of that as being predicting the future. But, you know, that's the smallest part of that meaning. Go through your Old Testaments. Read about the prophets. These were people who were the mouthpieces of God. That meant that they declared the word of God. Sometimes it had something to do with future, but not always. Most often it had everything to do with their present sin that was going to affect their future. So it's the declaration of the word of God. So do not despise prophecy. Well, how do you despise prophecy? Well, you sit under teaching and preaching, whether it's collectively or whether it's one-on-one, and you disregard it. You ignore it. You just, it doesn't matter to you. That's despising prophecy, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, but test all things. So don't just hear someone say, I declare to you the word of the Lord, and go, oh, well, here it comes. This must be true. What is the old saying? Don't believe anything you hear and only half of what you see. Right? Well, that's not to say that preachers, I pray, are trying to be faithful to the word, but we're human beings. And sometimes, probably more often than we'd like to admit, we make mistakes. So you're to test what we say. Don't take us for our word. Be like a Berean. Paul told us what they were like. They searched the scripture. I mean, Luke told us. They searched the scriptures to see what Paul said was true. They didn't just go, man, this is Paul. It must be true. So they, they were testing everything to see from the word if it was actually true or not. So now those two together tell us how we quench the spirit. Number one, we either disregard or ignore the declaration of God's word. Or we accept as true that which is not true in the declaration of God's word. It's a both and. Either way, we hinder, we quench the work of the spirit. And the reason that is true is because... Go back to what Jesus teaches us will be the work of the Spirit. He said, I'm going to send you a helper. But he's not going to work on his own. He's going to remind you of all the things that I have taught you. Right? That's the work of the Spirit. To point to Jesus. To point to his word. And so how does the Spirit work in and among us now? As he does it by means of the declaration of the word of God. He does not work on his own. He doesn't work inconsistently with the Word of God. And so when we ignore the declaration of the Word of God, or we just accept generally as true, and folks, there's a lot of stuff out there, especially if you follow Facebook and those kinds of things that that are declared to be true stuff in the name of Jesus that just have no business uh, in in the concept of Christianity. And, And we need to be very careful and test those things. And when we don't, then we hinder the work of the Spirit. And if we don't get that right, Go back to the top of this passage. We're not going to get that right. It is very fundamental that we persist in the word. And folks, this is not easy work. And it's not the work of the pastor. It's the work of every believer to struggle with the word of God, to grow and understand it.
But thank, thank God, Paul doesn't leave it there. These are all wonderful truths and things we should be pursuing and praying and being passionate about in the body of Christ. But fundamentally, this is where it all goes to. Paul says in verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a prayer. We love for people to pray those things for us. I mean, he prays basically that, that you completely, and he's speaking corporately as well as to you, but corporately, God's going to completely sanctify you all, all you believers. He's going to completely, and all that, every detail of you, body, soul, and spirit, he's going to he's gonna make that blameless in the day of Christ. Or this is what Paul prays for them, that God, may God do this. And I'm going, yes, please, Lord, because I know it's never going to happen if it's left up to me. It's never going to happen for you if it's based on sheer determination or strength of will. You will fail miserably. But then Paul adds that one little last phrase in there. He says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. What a glorious truth. At the end of the day, in all my struggles and all my failures, I can lay my head on my pillow knowing that it's all in the hands of God. In all the things that I struggle and fell in, God's going to make up for that. He's going to make it right, for he did it in Christ Jesus already. Now, we must be careful. That's not an excuse. It's, it's an encouragement of great hope that we are working from victory and the means by which God is going to bring about that sanctification for all of us is going to be through these things that he's talked about. It's going to be through the church. It's going to be through our relating to one another, encouraging and ministering to one another, seeking peace and being patient as God himself has been to us. But all oh, the glorious reality that comes when I stop and I think that as bad as I am, that God's got this. And there's no question whatsoever about that. So for Wilson's Mill, I'm, I'm sure you struggle in many ways. You are the bride of Christ. You're his radiant bride. His purpose for you is to magnify the gospel in all things. There will be those things that the opinions differ and we struggle through and, we, and maybe even we find ourselves frustrated, but rem, be reminded that because of the gospel, God's got this. If the decision doesn't go the way you want to, God's got this. We are to pursue the gospel together with great passion and let nothing deter us from that. Now, I have to say this. Because it's almost certain that not every person sitting in this room could even relate to what I've said. You know, peace, patience, you know those as moral characteristics. But you don't know them by means of the gospel because you've never repented of your sin. You've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And if that is you here today, I pray that by means of the word that the Spirit of God is working in your heart even now. As it said, he who calls you is faithful, and surely he will do it. I pray if the Spirit of God is calling you to come and, and embrace the reality that as an absolute sinful person who is helpless and hopeless, that God has got it. 
that he sent Christ on behalf of all of us who would repent and believe in the gospel. And that's my prayer for you today. And, and in a moment, Pastor Billy is going to come down here, uh, and there may be many ways in which you may respond this morning. But if you have yet to believe the gospel, I pray that you would come talk to him or TJ or Tim or, or somebody else and just ask them to, to talk with you and explain the gospel and pray with you about that, that you would come to repent and believe that very gospel that is the very thing that ensures that this church will be successful as it magnifies the gospel to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so grateful for the word. We pray that the word would rest powerfully upon each and every one of us. I pray, Lord, that we would be not guilty this morning of quenching the spirit by disregarding the declaration of your word. And I pray that your spirit would take in spite of me the very words and just drive them into our hearts and convict us, convince us, compel us towards the gospel, towards our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So God, in these moments, and not only in these moments, but even in the moments beyond that, I pray that you would continue to work in our hearts to change us. But Lord, maybe even now, there will be a work that you're doing in certain hearts, whether it's to, to repent and believe the gospel, whether it's to, as a believer to, who needs to repent, or who just merely needs to pray about maybe the decisions that are being made in this place today. I pray, Lord, you would work in the midst of all of that at this moment. And so, Father, whether uh, we, we walk to a front or whether we stand in our seats or however you call us to respond to you, I pray that the response that we, we give to you today uh, doesn't stop right here. But that, Lord, we, it would be evidenced as we walk out the doors into the world that we are to magnify and glorify the gospel among. May you receive all the glory, we pray. Amen.